Hello, Now Playing listeners. This is your frequent movie review co-host, Stuart, here to let you know about a contest we have because Facebook is Facebook. They like to make it difficult sometimes for guys like us to stay in your newsfeed. We're offering an incentive for you to go into your Facebook app, change the preferences, and make it so that you can continue to see Now Playing as part of your daily news feeds because they have a winnowing process. That means if we're not your closest friends and family, we may not be seen. And so if you go and make those changes, we are going to offer some prizes. First place, the book, a copy of The Art of Black Panther. Second place, you get the soundtrack. And if you want to know step-by-step how to do that, the instructions are on our webpage, nowplayingpodcast.com slash FB. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. The mysterious vigilante is in the news again. A little more than two hours ago, in an 8th Avenue subway underpass, two men were shot. One died on the spot. The other managed to reach the street before he collapsed. He died shortly afterward in the hospital. Both had long criminal records. The vigilante himself may have been wounded. Good evening, Mr. Cursor. Or should I say, Mr. Vigilante. Welcome to Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Hosted by Arnie. You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll say. Stuart. Well, he did seem a bit odd. Not only odd, the guy is crazy. It's that simple. And Jacob. I admire you. I'm a real fan. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Listener discretion is advised. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. It's showtime. Today we're discussing Death Wish. Starring Bruce Willis, Vincent D'Onofrio, Elizabeth Shue, Dean Norris. Directed by Eli Roth. This is the now playing co-host who has a death wish one last time, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, the host who's cock-locked and ready to rock. Finally, we're finally ready to rock. Remember when this movie was coming out in November and we had all the buildup? We had more buildup than actually MGM had buildup for this movie because we were leading up to it for months. We were getting our listeners excited. Death Wish! Everybody's like, there's another one? Yes! Death Wish! (laughs) And we're going to do it! And we're doing all five! We even watched a Kevin Bacon film to get ready for this. Yeah, six degrees. It made sense. But yeah, you know, it doesn't surprise me that it wasn't the perfect thanksgiving movie and uh, yeah after their shooting in vegas there was just reasons to push this one away into a less challenging time although it turns out that yeah (laughs) it's just as challenging when it came out yeah nothing that they were trying to avoid they got it out of the way of that said I don't think Eli Roth giving us a Thanksgiving turkey is necessarily the headline they want. Didn't he even 
do one of those grindhouse shorts about the Thanksgiving horror film. It's the only thing of his we've covered. Yeah, we're speaking about him as if he is a name, but up to this point, we have never covered an Eli Roth film except for his Thanksgiving movie trailer in the grindhouse feature. I believe Marjorie and I reviewed Hostel 2 way back in the early days of Now Playing when we did 20-minute spoiler-free reviews. Oh, okay. Because Marjorie and I are fans of Hostel. In the torture porn genre, Hostel was definitely one that got my attention. We also saw Cabin Fever in theaters. Eli Roth was kind of a horror name at the start of the century that we kept an eye on. And then he didn't exactly keep that reputation up or even keep working. No, well, I think he did some Lifetime movie that Stuart has talked about before. But yeah, Eli Roth, I think of extreme horror, hostile, man. But yeah, what else has he done? Where has he gone? And why did he pop up for Death Wish? That's the thing. If you say I'm bringing Death Wish back in 2018 in this political climate where we're as Americans, we're having a debate about modifying our gun laws and talking about mass shootings by lone gunmen. I would think you'd want to get a political director, right? Like if you said Oliver Stone is making it or Clint Eastwood is making it or even Michael Bay is making it, you come to it with some expectations about what the point of view is going to be. What about if Sylvester Stallone is making it? Because that's what kicked this whole thing off. Sly was going to star and direct. This was back in 2006, and this is what got the studios looking and writing a remake. Is Stallone, when he was reprising Rambo and reprising Rocky and really trying to, you know, Expendables 1 era, he said, I'm going to be the new Charles Bronson, I'm going to do Death Wish, and we're going to get Joe Carnahan in to write a script, and then I'm going to be Paul Kersey. I could see how this character would work for his image. I do feel like most of his movies these days are about avenging some wrong daughter or what have you. Yeah, he's the family man vigilante. Sure, Stallone could have done it, but you know what I'm saying. Eli Roth comes with no baggage as a political filmmaker. Eli Roth means to me that the killings are going to be real good. And what <laughs> it's going to mean beyond that, I don't know. Well, another pair of directors who I don't know were hired for this. This went through a lot of iterations, as you might imagine, being in development hell for literally a decade. It finally shot in 2016 after Stallone announcing it in 2006. Stallone parted ways. It was going to be Joe Carnahan, who, if you don't know that name, he wrote The A-Team, which is in our underrated movies book. Yeah, also directed The Grey, and I think wrote that as well. Two movies I really like. I, they were both on my list to be in the book, but we could only have one, so it was The A-Team. So, yeah, I was excited to see his name attached. And it was going to be Liam Neeson as Paul Kersey. Ah, of course. Too obvious, right? Like, that's what he does in every film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Then he's ripping off his own series, Taken 5, I guess. Yeah, Death Wish. Yeah, it's a crossover. But they parted ways. Bruce Willis got to star after, you know, they looked at a lot of people. I'm surprised they looked at a lot of people because Bruce Willis seems like he's kind of gone the route of Nick Cage and just, you got a paycheck, I'm going to show up on set and do what I do. I was shocked. I looked up, I'm like, what, what, what's Willis been up to lately? A lot of straight-to-video stuff, apparently, that I've never heard of. I watched a movie called Vice because it was on Encore, and it had Bruce Willis, and it had Thomas Jane. And I'm like, 
how did I miss a Bruce Willis movie coming out? I mean, I don't see them, but I know of them. And then I realized that with Thomas Jane as the star, Bruce Willis probably shot for three days and they just spread his scenes around, but he was on one set the whole time. And I'm like, yeah, he is now doing direct-to-video. I was so curious about this. I know Looper. But I asked the question anyway. I put it on our Facebook page and our Twitter. Has Bruce Willis made a really good film in this century? And I knew Looper would come up. And that was the number one film everybody said. There was some defense for Unbreakable. Yeah, I'd give him that. That's what, like 2002? Yeah, you're talking about the tail end of the 90s. Yeah. There was some for Moonrise Kingdom, a film I have not seen. He does not star in it. He's fine, but he is a glorified cameo. Yeah, I'm not sure what we're talking about here. Are we saying, was he in a movie that was good or that he made a movie great? See, I was thinking he made a movie great because I saw people put in the list, well, Sin City and Planet Terror. I'm like, you're saying Planet Terror is a Bruce Willis movie. You are stretching it. Yeah, same with Sin City. Again, I wouldn't call that a Bruce Willis movie. And there is some defense for 16 Blocks and Hostage. I saw both of them. They're fine. There was some defense for the Red series. We reviewed those. But no, I really think Bruce's heyday is so long gone. The Expendables. We can say all those 80s action stars. They're living that title. All of them. The people we thought were the peak of the mountain in the action genre aren't shit. All right? They're not shit in 2018. And so the best they can hope to do is be the grandpa vigilante killer. So... With Willis on board, they got these directors, Aaron Cashales and Navit Pushpushto. I'm not even sure I understood you, but no, I don't <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. What did they do? And why didn't they do this? Pushpushto did a film called Rabies. Okay, I've the, heard of Rabies. The disease, not the, the movie. Yeah, and dogs. <laughs> I've never heard of a movie called Rabies. Cashales co-directed it with him. But what happened was when you signed Bruce Willis... Bruce Willis had final say on any script changes, and these two guys wanted to change the script, and Willis would not approve a single change to Carnahan's script, and so they walked. And so they got Eli Roth. I don't think Eli Roth was a driving force behind this. This was, we're about to roll cameras, the directors have walked, Eli... Come in here, pick up the pieces, work with Bruce, assuage Bruce's ego. Eli Roth got Willis to agree to a rewrite of the script by some uncredited screenwriters. Carnahan's the only one credited, but Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski did some work on it. Oh, wow. Those guys are amazing. They did the OJ TV series and Ed Wood. Oh, okay. People versus Larry Flint. Oh, yeah. Okay, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, they worked with Eli Roth on the rewrite, and then cameras rolled, and this then sat on a shelf for about a year before it's finally been ready to rock. It was filmed in both Chicago and Quebec, but yeah, that's how this film happened, is it all happened because Stallone decided one day, I'm gonna be Paul Kersey, and this is what ended up happening because he started some Rube Goldberg machine. Well, you know, Willis is one of the few out and proud Republicans in Hollywood. You know, he makes no bones about the fact that he supports the Republican Party. It's semi-taboo in liberal Hollywood. This movie and him being the star of it, certainly when they were advertising it last fall, I was surprised he wasn't wearing a red ball cap, right? <laughs> I mean, like, it was under the banner of we're in Trump's America. This is a Trump recreation of the 70s vigilante movie. 
You remember when Trump really had this thing against Chicago and we need to bring in the feds and clean up the streets? That seems like such a long time ago. I was expecting this death wish. Forget about Chicago. Let's go against MS-13 now. That's the <laughs> latest topic. I do remember when he was talking about that being Illinois residents. It's big news. But Chicago... When we did our very first Death Wish review, I didn't know anything about this movie. I didn't know it had filmed in Chicago, but I postulated that Chicago would be the new New York City. What New York was in the 70s, I think Chicago is today. In that way, this movie is very topical. Chicago is an exceptionally high crime, high murder, high shooting area. Yes, it's much safer to be in Times Square than it used to be. I would also argue that there is many places in Chicago that is equally as polished and patrolled. But what we're talking about is the high murder rate in Southside Chicago related to gangs. And so if this movie is going to take on gang culture, then yes, that would be topical. Then we would be talking about a social ill that has befallen Chicago. This movie is going to sidestep a lot of that, though. The criminals really aren't gangsters. They're burglars. Gun ownership. I don't know how much of that really is a factor into what gets done. I hope you guys know about Illinois' gun policy, because I thought it'd be harder to get a gun there, but maybe it's not. California, it's super tough. When they go into that gun shop, it seems pretty easy to get a gun in Illinois. It isn't all that hard. And in fact, we were one of the last states to have concealed carry, but we do have that now. So again, I could be armed at this moment, and Stuart may not know. (laughs) Stuart, be careful. Just agree with them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have gone shooting here in Illinois. Illinois, especially the part I live in, is weird because we're like right on the border between the liberal north and the conservative south. And so in my city, you will see people proudly proclaiming which firearms they carry in their pickup right next to the car with the coexist and the Bernie Sanders bumper sticker. But yeah, taking place in my home state meant a lot. Bruce Willis, the poster said, Bruce is back. I obviously knew he went away, but will this be the movie to bring him back? <laughs> what I said early on with Death Wish, the one reason why you could remake it and improve upon that original is because Bronson is a very limited actor. He didn't really do a particularly good job in the beginning, and it only got worse from there. So yes, Death Wish could be better if they're able to get an actor who can do the drama, who can lose his family and wrestle with the repercussions of how he must get vengeance in a dramatically internalized performance, Willis can do those. I mean, I praised 12 Monkeys and some of his, you know, the general rule is if he goes bald, he's usually trying. And if he's got the wig, it's not as good. That was the rule in the 20th century. Now he's just always bald. Yes. And uh, he's never trying. Right. Yes, exactly. That's more important. Yeah, I'm shocked that you're praising him. You're praising a Willis from two or three decades ago, saying that he's got more range than Charles Bronson. Again, maybe in 1980, 1990, uh, maybe a few of those early years. But no, not this Willis. Not this year. Watch Vice and you'll never think of him as credible again. The fact that he's apparently going to star in an M. Night Shyamalan film coming up, a big budget one, means he is on the comeback trail and there's always talk of Die Hard 6. Is the twist that he'll actually act? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he didn't in Unbreakable, but people seem to like that film anyway. Well, I read this was going to open fairly big. It might even past Black Panther was the prediction. (laughs) My own theater experience didn't necessarily equate to that. I 
pre-ordered tickets in the reserved seat theater, nice recliners. It only had 46 seats. It comes at maximum occupancy, 46. So somebody even tweeted to me, you're not in a theater, you're in some rich guy's basement, aren't you? (laughs) But I ordered tickets like two hours before the show. I was the only person. I'm like, well, I'm going to have a private screening. Other people did shuffle in at start time, though. It was about a half full, tiny theater of people who were very talkative. And I was one of the younger people in there. Yeah, I had a similar experience. Uh, it, no surprise that it skews old. Bruce Willis fans are aging. And so the people in there were probably his age and his demographic, but it was pretty empty. I mean, I could put a leg up on each side and <laughs> turn on my phone. It's always nice. If you need to fart, you can do it and know that no one around you will judge. <laughs> well, three for three. I had my wife with me, so I didn't feel comfortable just letting one rip. But yeah, it was a pretty empty theater. I too already bought my tickets a few hours before the actual showing just to get them because I was driving by the theater. I was the first person to buy tickets there. I had my pick of seats when I that reserve chart came up. But did you enjoy the movie? Arnie, give him the plot we can find out if our wishes have been granted. Dr. Paul Kersey is Chicago North Hospital's resident ER surgeon, played by Bruce Willis. He's the one you want called when you're gunned down in a hail of bullets, which happens a lot in the gang-ridden city. But his ethical code of do no harm changes when a home invasion occurs. Paul's wife Lucy, played by Elizabeth Shue, is shot and killed. Their only daughter, college-age Jordan, is left comatose. Police detectives Reigns, played by Dean Norris, and Jackson, played by Kimberly Elise, are not overly responsive to Kersey's prodding for updates on catching the killers. And one night, Paul sees a mugging and tries to stop it, and is pummeled for his attempt. So he takes the gun off one of his patients and arms himself. When he spots a carjacking, he kills the two criminals, and a YouTube video of this earns him the name The Grim Reaper. Paul kills a drug dealer as well, but things get really heated when, into Paul's OR, comes a man he knew wearing Paul's stolen watch. From this clue, Paul tracks down and kills two of the men involved in the robbery that killed his wife. Meanwhile, the police start to suspect not Paul, but Paul's ex-convict brother Frank, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, is the Grim Reaper. Frank realizes this and talks Paul out of going after the final man, an argument backed up by Jordan waking up and going home. But Paul knows this last criminal, Knox, is coming for vengeance. So Paul arms his house with automatic weapons. Knox comes with two other goons and Paul kills them all, defending his daughter and proving himself a man. And while Detective Reigns knows what Paul has done, he believes Paul's vigilante days are over and lets the man go as credits roll. It's actually pretty close to the original novel and to the original movie, with the major change, I think, being that now Kersey, instead of being an architect, is a physician. And we can all agree, it is Kersey's job to keep you alive, whether you're a gangbanger or someone that was hurt by a gangbanger, right? I mean, we do not want our physicians to be judging if you live or die. Yeah, the Hippocratic Oath, thou shalt do no harm. Yeah, they're not there to play God, even though they often do. Yes. Yeah, it made me wonder why he became a doctor. Growing up in a medical family, I often wonder why people become doctors. You always hear it's because they want to help people, but Mm. I have four doctors in my family, and I can tell you that's not always the truth. Ka-ching, right? Ka-ching, ka-ching. Yes, I got a bunch of relatives that are doctors, and it's money. So I did find it interesting that they would make him a doctor. It does help with a storytelling engine. It gives him a place uh, which to see crime far more than I believe an architect would. 
Well, but yeah, but it's just as weird having Willis be a doctor as it was having Bronson being an architect. It just <laughs> don't fit the men. Yeah, wouldn't you just love to live in a house made by Charles Bronson or like, yeah, you <laughs> broke your leg and Willis is going to help you out? Yeah, I see Willis walks in to do my heart surgery. <laughs> nah, pass. I'll die. <laughs> this was a Chicago emergency room. I immediately thought of the TV show ER, which was set in Chicago. The fact that People are being brought in. When we open this movie, we got a nice aerial shot of Chicago. They got a helicopter in Chicago at night, and they used the hell out of that footage in this movie for every establishing shot. And this guy's being brought into the ER, and they call Kersey, who's already doing a surgery. So he's not private practice. Despite his advanced age and Mm -hmm. his wealth, he seems to just be the on-call surgeon. Not only that, I think this is the only hospital in Chicago, because it will be established he lives in Evanston. I know Chicago very well. I lived there for a decade. Evanston is a 40-minute train ride north. So for his wife and daughter to be taken to the same OR, these cops that are in downtown Loop Chicago is hysterical. There's a lot of traffic in this OR that I'm like, this is just the cheers of operating rooms. Everybody knows your name. (laughs) Yeah. But yes, the point is we start out here and it's two cops. They're on Wacker Drive and they somehow get to this hospital and this cop, presumably in the line of duty doing something heroic took some bullets and they were not able to save him and the man that shot him is next in line and that Willis is not broken up about it I think not because he's sworn to duty to his job but because Bruce Willis the actor is giving the same performance in every scene of this film we can all agree he is not trying right no I actually think he's trying more than I've seen him try in a long time oh wow well then you've been seeing a lot of stuff I haven't seen. Yeah, maybe he's trying more than Vice, but come on, he's not trying. I'm calling him Bruce Will Not. He's just, (laughs) I will not do this. I will not do that. I will not go to these emotional depths. I found it interesting that later on he will shed tears and he will show Mm. a little bit of pathos. Barely. But that's what Stewart said, is he's always given one of these subdued, internalized performances. I got more out of Willis here than I think I have in a long time. I'm just saying, if we're going to compare this with the original, Bronson does a better job with emotional depths. And that's Charles Bronson we're talking about. Agree. The reason why this movie was going to be better than the original was because Willis would be able to give us more than Bronson. And that is flat out not the case in every single scene. There's not a scenario here from him being the loving father, the ER staff member saving lives, the vigilante killer. There's no scene where I find him credible. There's a scene where they're setting him up that he's non-confrontational. He's at a soccer game watching his daughter with his wife. And of course, there's the crazy parent yelling and swearing. And I'm like, is he going to be the tough guy and punch the guy out? Is he supposed to be a pussy here as he gets called? I don't even know what I'm supposed to be getting from his blank stares back at this guy yelling at him. I do get this. Listen, it's not a great performance. Neither is Charles Bronson. I mean, we're setting a low bar here. And I think Bruce clears the bar as low as it is. He doesn't do anything exceptional. At no point do I feel when he's with his family and having the deep dish pizza, you know, let's do every Chicago stereotype. I know. It's like, guys, we're in Chicago, not Quebec. It's deep dish. Look, (laughs) look, this is really Chicago. I felt like those scenes, maybe he should have played a little bit lighter. When his daughter gets into the New York University, maybe there should be a little bit more happiness from him. But he 
is perfectly fine in this movie. He does not let me down. He does not lift me up. He is Bruce Willis. And when you want to see somebody pick up a gun and get shot after all this, he is perfectly cast here. I do think he is the current Charles Bronson. Ah, that's not a compliment, though. I want Yippie-Kaye, motherfucker. I want some life to him. Well, you got to get a time machine. You got to get a DeLorean for that. This is a death wish. This is flatlined his performance throughout the film. Listen, I agree with you, Jacob. I actually, this entire week, have spent my week listening to Bruce Willis' 80s records. I like 80s Bruce Willis. Ooh, why? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Secret Agent Man <laughs> and coming right up. I even got the Hudson Hawk soundtrack so I could hear his, would you like to swing on a star? Okay, I like 80s Bruce Willis. 80s Bruce Willis died. He died a long time ago. This is today's Bruce Willis. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to give him a pass because they've reanimated his corpse then. <laughs> and here's what he's giving. You mentioned the soccer scene. He's giving his old smug. He's not going to lift the gun. He's not going to fight this guy, but he's going to disarm him with being smarmy and saying pithy things that young Bruce Willis would have said and then backed up with actual action. That's what this Willis is going to do. He, it's strange that he's still kind of a sarcastic old man and yet... At the same time, we're supposed to think that he's a pacifist that's lived the charm. Kevin Bacon. I was really getting more of a death sentence vibe yes. than a death wish vibe in these early scenes. Oh, I'll agree completely. I was thinking a lot of death sentence, which basically was the first Death Wish remake instead of really a sequel of any sorts. And the fact that we have Bruce Willis needing to be saved by his wife, Elizabeth Shue, who I did not know was in this film... I did not recognize her. She has not babysat anyone for a very long time. It Wow, she has changed. I'm sorry, she is still very hot. Although I did look it up because when they bring her into the ER dead, they say a woman who's 45. No, she's 54, but I'm not going to age shame her. She's still looking great. She's still in Chicago. You don't want to fuck with the babysitter. Yeah, there's got to be some fan theory connecting these two movies now. Especially with Vincent D'Onofrio in both. Yes, Vincent D'Onofrio. That's more entertaining than this film. Let's come up with that connection. <laughs> Why is Vincent D'Onofrio in this film? They established a character that wasn't in any previous Death Wish movie. The brother. That's the criminal. You would think that that would be when Willis turns vigilante, his aider and abetter, right? This is the guy that's going to help him become the killer. I wondered why D'Onofrio was in this movie. I knew he was because I follow him on Twitter. I think he says some interesting stuff. He's kind of a I-don't-give-a-fuck guy anymore. He'll say whatever about whoever. And I think he did really, really well in the Daredevil series as Kingpin. I love him in that. We talked about him in Jurassic Park. He was kind of there, Jurassic World. And here, I'm like, what is this brother character going to bring? What's he going to add? And about 20 minutes into the movie, because they say he's an ex-con, but they never say what he was convicted of. They never say what he did, just that he can't get good employment because he has a criminal history. I'm like, son of a bitch, this is the John Goodman character from Death Sentence. I did not trust Anafrio <laughs> till credits rolled that it wasn't going to come out that Bruce Willis was going to have to shoot him in the face. Yeah, that is exactly what I concluded too. once he asked for money. I'm just like, wait a minute. I bet you we're going to find out that this hit that was this burglary. I mean, the, again, this is not gang related. These aren't just some bad dudes that messed with a family because they were privileged. These are burglars that wanted money and Vincent D'Onofrio wants some money. So I'm guessing that he is the mastermind of this attack. 
I'm wondering if there's something with the rewrites here now that I'm learning that people rework this script because that whole soccer scene feels like there should be a payoff to that at some point at the end. D'Onofrio's character, I definitely feel like, yeah, he's either going to be a criminal, he's going to take the fall for Paul Kersey. There's no payoff for his character. Take his character out of this film. It doesn't change a thing. No, I also did think by the end when I realized that this Knox was the big guy, I'm like, okay, maybe he's going to take the fall for his brother or something like that. No, he's just there for Paul to talk to once in a while. And it's astonishing how often Frank just drops out of the film and then just shows back up. And we're like, oh, yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio is still in this. The soccer scene, though, Jacob, I feel it does pay off. We are establishing that Paul is not a fighter. And in fact, Vincent D'Onofrio brings this up. They said that as a kid, Paul was a scrapper. And what he meant by that is he was abused by his dad. And he'll talk to his therapist at length about how he'd ride the L just to not go home and be beaten up by his dad because he'd get in fights all the time and he'd lose every time. The problem is Willis. He's not going to give me the performance to buy into the fact that he's an abused child and that's why he shies away from confrontation. Or they didn't cast an actor that's going to make me believe that. It's twofold with casting Willis. Just him alone, I don't buy it. And he doesn't give me a performance to make me think he's this uh, wilted rose or whatever, you know, where he's just going to shy away from everyone because he was beat up as a kid. Liam Neeson, despite Taken and everything, could still give that performance, I think. I think Liam Neeson could still play the guy who is a pacifist who decides to fight. But you're right. I don't get that out of Willis. But I know what movie I'm in also. I've seen the ads. I know where this is going. So I'm just taking it as the film setting things up. Where the film did get me, there was one scene of this movie that hit close to home. After they go out for deep dish, this deep dish place apparently has a valet. The valet goes and gets their car And because he hears they have dinner plans, snaps a picture of their home address in the GPS. And I'm like, shit, my wife's car has a GPS just like that with our home address in it. Here's the thing, Arnie. In California, the thieves, they'll break into your car and they'll pull your registration to get your address. So you don't need GPS. Still, this is effective. I'm going to say that this is the biggest jolt in the film is to realize, oh my God, we're all so vulnerable. It's like one of those late night TV news spots (laughs) where like, what you don't know about your doorknobs can kill you. Yeah, it's like, oh, God, it never occurred to me that, yeah, this is a path into people getting into your home, that he's seen the kind of car you drive, he knows you have money, and now he has your address. So if he's working with criminals, I don't know why he'd be working with Uncle Frank, but somehow I thought he was. (laughs) Me too. That's going to be the crime that is going to befall this Kersey family. And this valet driver, he overheard that they have dinner plans, because I was wondering, why would you go rob a place? You don't want a home invasion. That's just messy for everyone. It's not nice ideal situation. But also when these burglars show up, they're like, go open the safes for us. Maybe they're improvising there because people were home. Yeah, what happened was they were talking about how it's Paul's birthday Wednesday night, and they're all going to go to this fancy restaurant. And so this MJ valet, he's got giant MJ tattoo on his arm. Miguel is his name. He hears they're going out to dinner Wednesday. He sees their car. And Uncle Frank, he actually says to the valet, this guy's got the money. I don't have the money. And so it's pointing out to Miguel, hey, go rob this guy on Wednesday night. He won't be home. And so unfortunately, 
Being a doctor means sometimes you get called into work when you don't want to, including on your birthday. And so his wife and daughter are home. And Eli Roth is a horror director. He comes from horror, and he's not one of those people who wants to flee the horror ghetto and get away from it. He likes horror. He did the film Knock Knock, which I watched. It is Keanu Reeves in a home invasion thriller where two women come and kind of take him hostage. It's, It's a really kind of fun Keanu film. And I think he does this home invasion scene really well with the open window, the muddy footprint, the glimpses of the guy behind the glass. Yeah, I like their mask. Whatever they're wearing, it looks like those second skins that people wear, those tight uniforms. There's something off-putting. It reminded me of a Leatherface impression if you took a piece of bologna and, like, cut a mouth out of it. Yeah. But see, that's what I'm looking for. Like, Eli Roth, like, Willis, I don't have a whole lot of faith in because I saw A Good Day to (laughs) Die Hard. But Eli Roth, I'm like, okay, at least this is going to be extremely gory and unsettling. They put out a great trailer. They did a Grindhouse-style trailer for this film. I showed that to my wife. That's the only thing she knew about this movie going in. I'm like, you got to watch this trailer because it makes it look good. And she's going to understand why I said makes it by the end of this film. But I knew it wasn't going to be a grindhouse film. But with Eli Roth, I wanted more of that aesthetic. And yeah, you get little bits of it here and there, like with this break in. Yeah, that's worth asking the question. All right, so we have Eli Roth. We have someone whose specialty exclusively is torture, right? The hostile films. Cabin Fever didn't have a monster. It was just that you rotted away. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just, I like gross, disgusting, exploitative gore. And so are we comfortable watching a Death Wish movie that's put out in a time when we're highly gun sensitive and sensitive about crime and violence in Chicago? Can we have fun putting all of that aside and just saying, no, I want to see someone done up real good. Yeah, I can. I absolutely can. You know, I don't like real death. I don't even like real blood. I get a little squeamish at the sight of it. But give me a slasher film any day. I put the real world at the door when I walk into that theater, and it's been a really long time since I've seen a real fun genre, 80s, commando level shoot 'em up film. I'm game for what Eli Roth can deliver with this. Arnie, I'm going to recommend Right in Cell Block 99 with Vince Vaughn. That is a great throwback to those 80, 90s genre, real violent films. With this, I watched that first trailer. I'm like, oh, this is all Trump country. I, I got a bad feeling. But, but you know what? The whole Chicago thing, that goes away. If this was a fun exploitation film, yeah, I could have that fun. I'm glad they don't got rape in this one. Do they? Yeah, they hint at it, but... I wondered, because we talked about rape endlessly with the first few Death Wish films, and there is the three guys, and we don't know who the robbers are. Miguel is not one of the three home invaders. Confusingly, no. He just gave the tip-off to this barkeep who then hired three goons, or put him in contact with Knox, who hired two goons. It's way too abstract. The plot needed to be more tight. Yeah, or at least the characterization of these bad guys, because goons come out of nowhere in this film. Yeah. But there's three in the house, and you don't know who's who until later. We're going to find out there's a guy, Joey, who's an auto mechanic. Because he gets cut here, and we see him with a scar later, we know Joey's the one who's really into Jordan. That's their college-age daughter, and he's like, just give me a couple minutes. And some guy behind a mask, I don't think it's Knox. I think Knox went upstairs for the safe. He did. The third guy, Fish, is like, it's not that kind of party. But- Joey, his hand 
goes up the thigh, and then we cut away. I don't know how high up that went. Well, yes, there's some sexual assault, but there's not rape like in those other Death Wish films. Correct, and I was very happy to see that because it is too serious a subject for this light of a movie. The lack of rape, you mean, is what you're happy to see. Yeah. This is not an exploitation movie. This movie doesn't really do that. Despite Eli Roth, there's only maybe one or two scenes that really is exploitatively enjoying the kills, and at no point do we exploitatively enjoy the sexual threat here. Thankfully, I want to add. Well, yeah, no, I don't want to enjoy the sexual threat, but as far as the violence goes, look, I don't want to enjoy it like rah-rah, yeah, this is awesome, let's all go out and shoot our local gang member. But yeah, is that throwback 80s, what these Death Wish films were in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, I could enjoy that without it being tied to Trump and what he said about Chicago and people holding on to their guns. I could separate all that and enjoy a film. So can I. I mean... I did realize when watching this film, they made a specific mention of the AR-15, which is a big gun in the news right now. It did take me out of the movie to think about that. I have fired an AR-15. I know it is not exactly what the media is portraying it out to be. It is not a submachine gun. It is not an Uzi. But it made me think about the time. It also made me realize if they really moved this movie because of the Las Vegas shooting, we have too many shootings in this country to ever find a weekend where you're going to be shooting free. So here we are after the Florida school shooting, opening literally a day after a college shooting where a 19-year-old shot some people and killed his parents. You're not going to get away from gun violence in this country. But the question here really is, and it's kind of a question the country is asking, is the defense more guns or less guns? This movie's going to say more guns. I don't think this movie is going to say anything about that debate. I guess that's what I'm leading to here, is that ultimately this is neither fish nor fowl. It is neither enjoying politics be damned, we just want to see bad people get killed, nor does it really offer any kind of commentary on gun ownership, gang violence, or how to quell crime in Chicago. It doesn't do anything. My comparison is Red Dawn. That original Red Dawn, I don't think it's a great film, but it's got a point of view like... Yeah. If you want to join the John Birch Society, go watch that film and get pumped up. Then they remade it, and it is the blandest damn remake. Like, that is some of the fun, is have a point of view, even if it's a bit extreme. I'm at least going to be able to mine something out of that. Don't be milk toast in this film. It's going to be pretty milk toast. I guess it's maybe where I live and some of the friends I have, but... There's a website called gunssavelife.com. Not lives, plural. Yeah, life.com. And they have these road signs that I just find endlessly amusing. There's like four signs as you drive down the interstate. So the first one is when criminals come. Second sign, I'll tell you, honey, that rabbit's foot won't save no bunny. Gunsavelife.com. You know, <laughs> it's all about how if a criminal breaks into your house, cops aren't going to help you. They say that in this movie when they get to the gun shop. And when they go to Texas, which I'm jumping past the death here a little bit, where we get to see Bruce cry. Uh, they put some eye drops in his eyes so he, they could shed some tears. And his daughter doesn't die. She goes into a coma like we had in the first one. Yeah. And he has to take his wife's ashes to Texas. Now, I did go back and double check. 
I missed the him. There's one mention that Elizabeth Shue says, do you think my dad was happy I moved from Texas? I missed that. But when they get down there and this guy's in a pickup with a shotgun, I'm like, are they in Texas? I just took it as the Texas stereotype and I was right. That's the equivalent of the scene where Bronson goes to what, Arizona and learns about guns. And yeah, mm-hmm. Willis is going to learn from his father-in-law. You know, What are they poaching off his ranch? Like deer? I don't even know there's poachers in Texas. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it's a deer that's there. But here is this movie statement. The father says it. There are two times that this movie makes its mission statement. And here, the father-in-law, who only has this one scene and doesn't seem nearly as broken up over his daughter's death as I would expect. No one seems broken up over this dead wife and this comatose daughter. Like, my wife was getting infuriated. She's like, does anyone care that the wife is dead? Does anyone care that this daughter is in a coma? No one is emotionally distraught over any of this. No. They actually film it like he's walking up to the corpse. There's a blanket over it. You see the blonde hair. He's like, oh, no, is it? And he pulls it back. He's like, oh, good. It's just my wife. (laughs) It's not my beautiful daughter. But his father-in-law says, quote, people rely on the police to keep them safe. That's the problem. The police only arrive after the crime has taken place. That's like trapping the fox as he's coming out of the hen house. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he needs to do it for himself. Yeah, I guess that's a statement. My uncles from Arizona post those memes almost daily on Facebook. I don't know how much of a gutsy statement that is. More to the point, it's he should have been home. That he should have been messing around at the hospital. He wasn't home at the time of the attack to protect him. Now, yes, he didn't also have guns in the house to use, but they had lots of cutlery and what have you. Maybe he could pull out a scalpel. It's not like there was no weapons in the house. Shu is actually really inventive the way she grabs that pot of boiling water and throws it in the guy's face. Oh, they make that so obvious. I was waiting for that part to happen. <laughs> It was caramel. It wasn't just water. She was making trace leches cake. Yeah. <laughs> but that is the statement here is that you need to protect yourself. You need to arm yourself. Gunsavelife.com could have funded this movie. And you know what? It's a debate. Do they tell you how to take on three armed intruders? Look, this is where that weird fantasy element comes into these people who think they're going to save their home. You you got a home invasion with multiple people with guns. Okay, grandpa in Texas, I don't think it's going to work. Invest in a safe room. That much better idea if you have a family. Get them in the safe room. Yeah, here's the thing. If Willis were home during the attack, like Death Sentence put Kevin Bacon at the scene, you could say he failed as a man. You could make that case. I mean, I have all sorts of issues with that as a statement or that you need a gun to be a man. There's a lot here that I think is questionable masculinity, but let's just table all that and say that that's the point of the view that they want to come across and are they demonstrating it well? No, they are not because Willis could never have helped them. If he had had 90 guns or zero in that house, it would not have saved his wife and daughter. And that is the problem with the way they laid this thing out. They have almost intentionally, it seems like, set up things so that we don't have a deeper debate and take this one scenario and blow it up large to talk about greater issues. It's almost impossible to talk about anything relevant looking at the cursey. Admittedly, you're right. I hadn't thought about the fact that No matter how many guns he had, he wasn't at home because he had to go save life. You know, surgeonsavelife.com. So (laughs) he was off saving some other lives when this happened. But I'll give it this. You mentioned how when Paul in this movie goes to Texas, it's like when Charles Bronson went to Arizona. 
But this movie is going to move a lot faster because within 30 minutes, he's already been to Texas. He's back. He's in therapy. And that's when we get into act two of this movie. It's not a very long movie. It's just over an hour and a half. It's going to move, but it moves a little bit slowly between the wife's death and the time Kersey gets a gun. This period, because we know what's coming. We've seen it in the trailer. So to see him just riding the trains and talking about his emotions and not really delivering the lines great, it really feels like he phoned it in. Yeah, if this was an actor who had some use of the craft, I could get into this stuff. Instead, you know, when Bronson, when he had that sock full of quarters and he's so shook up after he beat that first guy. Again, not great acting, but he sold that emotion. Here, Willis is just riding the rail. I never get that moment where he's shaken to the bone with what's happened here. No, it's just as long in the original movie as it is here. It takes a long time for Bronson. I think it's like an hour or 45 minutes before Bronson concludes, you know what? I can go out and find some kind of justice with this pistol. But it's not as interesting because that journey to Arizona, which was I found so interesting, is not interesting when we go to Texas. It's a throwaway scene. Willis is giving us nothing. I think the character to latch on to where we could actually have debates is his therapist. You know, they have this Jill Clavin who is going to basically prescribe sleeping pills for him. She's going to be perceived as part of the problem. But if they had approached her differently, and if he actually confided in her things, I think that we could have a movie that was more about issues. This is not a movie that wants to debate issues. It's a movie that says it wants bloodlust and grindhouse. So the problem is it takes way too long to get to that. Yeah, this is more Death Wish 2 with Bronson walking around the LA slums for a long, long time. And I think there's supposed to be some comedy here too, because we have Dean Norris of Breaking Bad and Kim Kimberly Elise from Set It Off. I did miss OSHA. The one place where I definitely felt the first film was superior was the character of OSHA, who was a cop almost as fleshed out as our killer, so that we could see both sides. Here, what we see are overworked cops who seem pretty inept. At one point, the chief says, get off your asses and go do some detecting, which is the exact same thing Kersey was telling them to do <laughs> earlier in the film, when they're like, you know, it's going to take a few weeks. We got to do some forensics. We got this whole board full of unsolved cases and literally a sign on it that says we're going to need a bigger board. The problem is with OSHA and it, that whole side of the story was interesting in Death Wish is like, oh, this vigilante is actually more dangerous than any gang member because this could really spread. I just never got that angle here. It was just like, yeah, here's the bumbling cops that we're going to use to fill up some space. Roth is more interested about making a Jaws joke. I mean, that tells you where the director is, that he loved that bit with the, we're going to need a bigger board. Roth is not someone that is going to sell us the drama of this situation. And so he's on autopilot until he can kill something. And this movie is an incredibly long time to get Willis to that point. He does go out and try to fight some goons without a gun, and he just gets his ass kicked. Remember, there's a woman in an alley in the loop, and he just walks up to them, and that's what sends him to the gun store, where there's a girl that kind of looks like his daughter, tries to sell him a whole house full of... I thought this was supposed to be like a Tommy Lauren character, if you know who that is from Glenn Beck's online TV studio. The pretty blonde that's young, but extremely conservative. Bethany is her name, and what she reminded me of, because we first see Bethany in a television ad that I thought was a straight take off Jackie Brown, yeah, you know? I was say, yeah, straight from Jackie Brown. But then he goes into the shop, and she's there, 
happily walking him through all the Foyd card process and everything, telling him how quickly he can get a gun. There is the waiting period, and I think she does mention that, and I think later on the movie skips the waiting period. The reason he doesn't get a gun, though, because she drops the line that the bullets could be traced back to the gun, and it seems like that's why he doesn't go through with it. I agree, that he would have been all there and bought everything, including the technical furniture, which he eventually (laughs) will... No waiting period for that. You do not set up Chekhov's technical furniture <laughs> when not use it. I saw that in the ad and I'm like, it's going to come back. And I was happy it did. Yeah, definitely it's going to come back. But yes, the problem is, is that he wants to do this anonymous. And so we just have to have very late into the game, this clumsy, oh, gangbanger just roll into the OR. And guess what? A gun drops onto the ground. No one notices. Yeah, that just seemed real unrealistic (laughs) that that wasn't found. Like, usually, again, you're in the back of the ambulance. They're ripping clothes off so they could get to parts to inject or whatnot. That gun wasn't found. It was just sitting in his waistband. I mean, if they did it like the original, the dad in Texas would have given Willis the gun. Yeah, the problem is you can't just put that on a plane. It's a bit tougher these days. They would add a... Yeah, no, admittedly, admittedly, times have changed and that's not allowed. But that was the whole point of Bronson going to Arizona was he would learn about what a safe community patrol by guns was and then receive one as a present. That Texas thing does not pay off the same way. No, and this OR is the OR of convenience. Every time the movie needs something to happen, it happens in the OR. Think about it. Every time there's a change in this movie's tone, it happens in that one room. The wife's dead. Okay, I'm going to see her in the OR. He needs a gun. Okay, I'm going to get one in the OR. We need to get back to the plot of his people who invaded his home. The clue is going to just literally be delivered to him in the OR. Yeah, he needs a victim to shoot. He's going to run into a kid harassed by the ice cream man. And everything happens that OR. Yeah, seriously, that is a lazy, lazy plot convenience. I actually thought that's how he's going to find his victim. It's like, oh, here's a uh, old lady who was shot. Now, who shot you? Okay, I'm going to go kill them. And I actually thought that was going to be the plot after that scene with the kid and the ice cream man. Shouldn't it be? If this were going to honor the original death wish, remember, Kersey never did get the man that killed his wife and raped his daughter. He just got justice by taking down every hood he could in Manhattan. And they could have gone that route. If the point was, I'm going to turn my rage about what happened to me into justice for this city and really address what Chicago is going through, then yes, every time a kid comes in with a bullet wound, he finds out who fired that bullet and goes and gets him. It is a perfect storytelling engine for a revitalization of a television show. If you want to death wish the TV series, this is the perfect pilot episode. Every week, a new person comes into the ER, and he has to go out and kill the people who does it. It's like the equalizer. Right. And it could be like a Breaking Bad. Again, Dean Norris could be playing a very similar role with getting closer and closer to nailing this doctor who's Grim Reaper at night. Oh, you just gave some cable station an idea. It's coming out next year. (laughs) It should have happened. Let's face it. It would have actually been more inventive to see Death Wish play out in that way, in that long format. More popular, too. More watched, I would argue. (laughs) Just better in general if they had explored it in that way. But they ultimately, because of the movie format and because Willis's character really isn't about getting justice for the world, just basically, this movie is going to condone vigilante violence as long as you only get the people that hurt you personally. No, no. He starts off very much like the Charles Bronson. He is just trying to bring justice to Chicago. The Mm. fact that he stumbles upon the people who got him, that's the fact. I said that when we did the 
original Death Wish review. No modern film is going to let those people get away. I'm also very disappointed none of those criminals is as charismatic as Jeff Goldblum. But that's <laughs> going to be something that is going to tie up this movie. I felt that was a given. So... I liked the fact that we still got him out on patrol. He was just taking on Chicago crime. But we only have two instances of that. And one of which just feels like target practice. He goes out to a warehouse, he shoots up signs, and then he decides, all right, let me put it into motion. And we have a bizarre first encounter in which... Are they carjacking? Yes. Okay. There is a woman that is labeled tight-dressed woman. I don't know if she's prostitute or woman upwardly mobile in a nice car that's being carjacked. But there's a woman screaming in a nice car and two bald white guys and Willis kills them. But that didn't feel like he was trying to fight crime. That just felt like, can I actually hit a person? They'll do. <laughs> and the fact that he's just shooting into a car where there is an innocent woman, this film, it's kind of toothless with either way of the argument, either pro-vigilante, anti-vigilante. This is a just a revenge fantasy to me because y you could have done something there. Like he hits the innocent, but there's no reflection here. He gets caught on camera. Let me tell you, that scene where he was shooting is it a little close to home because I've been bitten by the slide on a Glock and that that fucking hurts. I saw him and I'm like, his hand's bleeding. The slide got him. And I knew that immediately because the slide got me and I bled all over the gun and then I had to clean the gun. That hurts. But then I felt a little chagrin when the cops are like, he didn't know what the hell he was doing. Look at how he <laughs> got the slide got him. He doesn't know what a gun is. I'm like, oops, that was me. But having <laughs> had that snake bite, I knew what was going on with there. And I like <laughs> the only time the audience entirely laughed is when the cop is telling the person who videoed it, I don't need you putting it on social media or whatever you kids do. And she goes, I posted it three hours ago. I'm getting hits like a motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> of course. That, that's the <laughs> truest thing in this film. Yeah, but this is the crossroads. This is the point where we say Kersey is either the vigilante that is going to stop all crime or Bruce Willis is going to go and get those three guys that killed Elizabeth Shue and put Jordan in a coma. And we only have one very brief, like, blink and you miss it scene of little Tyler in the ER saying, I don't work for the ice cream man and he shot me and Willis going and being his last customer. I mean, that could have been removed and we'd have no sense at all that he was getting justice against gangbangers. Well, that's the thing. If that valet never came into the ER... Would there have been a, I'm going to go after the gang and get them back? It feels like the movie would have been much more like the original Death Wish, where it would have just been random gang members. But because of the magical ER, where all plot contrivances come to be revealed, that valet shows up so he could get back to that mission. And I'm going to speculate, because studios and editors feel like this movie would play better if we didn't have random vigilante violence of a white guy in a hoodie killing whoever he thought was bad. That's why we don't know. We don't know what he's been doing in between Ice Cream Man and MJ coming back. I do think there was more. It is implied by Shay and Man Cow that he becomes the talk show morning topic du jour. I, of course, again, being from Illinois, being in Chicago a lot, know Man Cow very well. Yeah, I didn't know he was still around. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I don't hang with him, but I mean, I know the show really well. <laughs> yeah, he was always like a ripoff of Stern. Like, I always felt like he was wannabe. Yes, no, they had a big rivalry. He wound up in the wannabe Death Wish. Well, he Here's what I found interesting in the behind the scenes. I don't know that Eli Roth has a viewpoint on this. Mm -mm. He told Shay and Mancow, here's what's happened in the plot. 
Go ad lib dialogue. Act like it's real. Bring whatever perspectives you're going to bring to it. They directed the scenes themselves. They just treated it literally like their radio show. There was no script. Eli Roth was not saying be pro or be con. The editors chose what to go. And we see Man Cow is pretty much for. Shay is against because it's a white guy killing black guys. But Shay's panel is for it because they're also protecting black people. So it really seems that the Greek chorus here comes out on the side of pro-Grim Reaper. You know, if you've seen the Boondock Saints, they do this at the very end where they go around interviewing regular people, asking their opinion about vigilantism, and it feels like that's how they hedge their bets. Oh, but look here. No, no, no. We got people questioning if this was the right thing just in case they get called out for glorifying gun violence or vigilantism. Like, this always seems to me a way to hedge those arguments preemptively. I agree. It just diffuses the issue so that everyone can watch this and go, I see my point of view. Okay, so it's really not about that. They're not going to make the argument that one point of view is correct. You can hold whatever opinion you want about gun violence, but the point of this movie is not that. The point of this movie is that once we finally get to these killers who we know are bad, and that empirically we know all of them have done terrible things and should be punished for that, that we can enjoy the splatter. And the ice cream man, I mean, he shot little Tyler in the leg. We know he deserves to die. Sure. But again, blink and you miss it. That one almost feels like maybe they added at the last minute or they decided they just couldn't lose it. But it barely factors into my feelings about the movie because he's so quick to being back on the trail of his wife's killer. And it, that's at the one hour mark exactly. I was paying attention to the time. We get 30 minutes of him deciding to pick up a gun about 30 minutes of him learning to use the gun with a back in black montage. I guess it's been 10 years since Iron Man used it. So this film feels like it can do it. So as my wife turns to me and she's like, well, what is he back from? Why are you playing this song? He's not back from anything. This is his first time doing it. She was very upset. I loved the split screen. Like it's saying doing surgery on a person and cleaning a gun take the same level of skill. <laughs> yeah, the same thing. You know, but this is a movie that is just, again, with having Willis here and ACDC, everything that was macho and cool in the 80s, which is now seen as old fart stuff, we want to bring back. Michael Jordan, you know, he makes the whole point that MJ's tattoo reminded him of the very famous Chicago Bull, who is not that famous anymore. It was kind of weird. When I moved to Chicago, you couldn't escape Jordan's influence, and now I can't see him on anything other than the statue outside the United Center. But yeah, just the idea that we want to bring back what was macho in the 80s is what they're trying to sell here. And ACDC, I guess, sells that. When ACDC came in, it made me think of the first Red film. You're starring an old guy, and you're playing to old instincts, which was, again, my audience was pretty much older than me, and it's saying, hey, you guys can still kick ass. You guys can still go out there and tell the young generation how to get in line. It's kind of like Judge Judy with bullets. Yeah, it definitely feels like anytime we have a senior citizen action hero, they need to acknowledge that. The Expendables was a whole movie about how we're not old, damn it. But you are. And I mean, it would be more interesting to me if they didn't have to work so hard to try and say that no time has passed at all and this is old Bruce Willis. It's not. It's clearly not. I found it a little odd that Bruce Willis and Elizabeth Shue had a 17 or 18 year old daughter that seemed a little young for their only child. Yeah, granddaughter is what it should have been. <laughs> but... He does finally have MJ come into the OR, giving him exactly what he needs. I thought he was going to take another gun. He takes the cell phone. I thought that was pretty clever, using the dead man's fingerprint to unlock it. Agreed. That was cool, like the GPS was cool. MJ was wearing his watch, 
which is what gave him the clue. And so then goes to the liquor store because MJ was given the watch as a gift. Which also tells me this is geared towards old people because who wears a watch these days unless it's a smart watch. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even understand that. He went through the phone pictures and there was a lot of, again, they looked like 80s posters of women on top of cars. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, there's just this liquor store. And it, I thought he reviewed it on Yelp or something. <laughs> like, I'm like, so what? It's a liquor store. But for some reason, he knows it's a fence. There was a text that said, got a gift for you. The watch was a gift. It was his payment for giving him Kersey's ah, address. Okay. I did not follow that subtle detail. But yes, this is a fence for stolen merchandise and his stuff is in the back room and he wants his stuff back. So now we finally get some killing. Some killing that matters. I want to know, you mentioned the 80s posters. When he walks into the liquor store, it's nighttime. Nobody's in the front. So he goes in the back room where an old, I think, Chinese man is watching bare-assed bowling. I don't quite know what that was. It reminded me of what, like, the man show used to have. But women in thongs bending over to bowl. I'm like, what network is that? It's the Eli Roth network that will never exist. The fact that they pan to a bowling ball, I'm like, okay, that's going to fall on someone's head and kill them. That was way too set up. It made me think of the game Mousetrap, the way the bowling ball started to roll well ahead of time. I'm like, oh no, that's not going to just, oh it is. And that's ultimately why I have to really damn this movie. Politics aside, whatever you feel about the quote unquote issues, this movie's not about that. It needs to be about great exploitation violence. And this stuff is not great. Great. This looks really stupid when Fish comes back and accidentally shoots the barkeep and then gets taken out by a bowling ball Rube Goldberg. Yeah, Willis doesn't even kill the barkeep. He gets shot by the other guy who then gets hit on the head with a bowling ball. And I think that's because the shopkeep was just a fence. He's a criminal. Shoot him. That's what he does. This movie is not going to be the Punisher where everybody deserves a bullet if you break the law. You jaywalk, you die. That's the extreme of it. Here, this guy's just a fence and he didn't have anything directly to do with Kersey's daughter and wife. And so we want him to die because he's a criminal. We, the audience, want him to die but we might not be on Paul's side if Paul's the one who pulled the trigger. I would have been on Paul's side still if this movie was any good at this point, but I don't know why he draws the line here. He shot the ice cream man after those carjackers. He's going after people breaking the law, so why not? You got to make sure there's no witnesses anyway. You can make the case that they wouldn't have robbed him to begin with if there wasn't this place to sell the merchandise, so... That's still not necessarily a easy sell death penalty offense. Okay, if the barkeep would have shot some kid and he would have shot up in the magical ER, then he could have shot him. Yes. So here we have Fish doing the shooting of the guy. And then I did enjoy the Eli Roth touch of the brains and giblets coming out of Fish's head when he falls on the gun right under his chin. Yeah, I wish there was a whole lot more of that. That's what I thought I was going to get with Eli Roth. Yeah, the bear Jew is supposed to be bringing down the baseball bat and it just doesn't play that way. When those moments come in this movie, it feels like an entirely different movie than what we've been watching for nine. 98% of it. That's the one complaint I really, really have about it is this movie seemed serious. This movie seemed like a drama for 45 minutes, even when he's killing the carjackers, even when he kills the ice cream man. None of it is played for Freddy-like laughs with the extreme gore and when Jason is eviscerating people. So when the giblets came and when the bowling ball hit, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm enjoying it. Because it's a throwback, but man, that was a tonal shift I didn't expect. 
perfect. Yeah, this movie is 98% death sentence, and then every now and then we get a Death Wish 3. That is <laughs> jarring, and I feel like Eli Roth wants to make Death Wish 3, so let him make Death Wish 3. And who cares who's offended? Because this is a silly B movie. You know, John Waters once said, you know, he restaged the Kennedy assassination with a drag queen really soon after JFK was killed. He's like, just be tasteless. When you're an exploitation filmmaker, don't worry about pissing people off. That's your job. Let Eli Roth be Eli Roth if that's all he can be. If he's not going to take on the issues, then God damn it, let him do Death Wish 3 and it'll be tasteless. We'll all complain about it, but secretly we'll enjoy at least the byproduct of his glee doing terrible things. Here, we don't even get that. Yeah, that's what I find funny is a lot of the reviews I read after I saw the film, it was all about the politics of this film, and this is a Trump supporter's wet dream, and this is a fascist pro-vigilante shoot up I don't get any of that. No. I went in expecting that. That's what I actually thought I was going to get, and I got something super bland and driftless. It, just, it doesn't go anywhere. It's a Trump supporter's blue balls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll agree. I did look after the fact at just the reviews and everything was about the political climate. And to me, it doesn't have that big of a stance, gun violence, pro or against. I think that it's kind of listless in that regard, leaving it to man, cow and shade to kind of say it's a good thing to protect your own. Nobody's going to say it's a good thing to be a pacifist and watch your daughter get raped and your wife get killed. Except he doesn't do that in this either, so. It's not a bold statement, but... It's at this point after Fish dies that we do get more into the Eli Roth level of exploitation. Yeah, too little too late, but I mean, it's why it's in all the previews. When Jack kills Joey with the car and the sciatic nerve exposed with brake fluid being poured in, this is something that would have been in Hostel. Yeah, why didn't we get to this an hour earlier? And this is that whole line. It's kind of corny, but this is what I was expecting. You know, I'm not going to kill you. Jack is. My wife saw that in the trailer. She's like, oh, damn, I got to see this movie. This is going to be so good. Unfortunately, that's the only scene like that. <laughs> and that is a bad line. That is a really it's bad, bad line. It's bad, but it's bad in the right way for this kind of film. It would have played in Grindhouse. Why not make it in that Grindhouse style? You guys like that Grindhouse trailer. Wouldn't they have been better off just making that movie? I enjoyed the scene with Joey. I like the fact that, it, again, I was able to tell this was the rapist guy because he had the cut on the face. The burns on his face healed pretty nicely, but the torture with the drug and cutting the nerve open to get the information out of him, it was an effective scene, but man, all of a sudden, I can see a guy picking up a gun and going and shooting people. I guess I'm not a surgeon. I don't like real life blood. Going into torture for your fourth kill seems like a really big leap. I'm going to go in and hurt you the most I can possibly hurt you until you give up Knox. And one of the things I said with the original Death Wish, it would be an interesting film. They haven't done this, is the Paul Kiersey character. He is going crazy that this is a bad thing for your soul, for your psyche to go out and do vigilante justice. And to, yeah, show him where he's like going into that torture mode and, and just losing all sense of reality and humanity. That'd be an interesting way to go. They're not going to go there, though. I'm not sure that this movie is dramatically equipped to go there. So maybe it's best that they don't. They have one scene where he's having nightmares where he's reliving his shootings and the bullets are landing in photos of his wife and daughter. And I think that is the only indication that he's having some kind of moral quandary about this. Mostly it's just out of convenience. His daughter gets better and he's like, okay, I don't have to do this anymore. But that's after the bad boys nightclub scene. 
Yeah. Oh, that nightclub scene is so bad. <laughs> You're right, bad boys. It, it's a bad scene. It reminded me of the scene where the two guys have the bathroom fight in Bad Boys, but this scene feels very different than every other scene. This is from a different film, right? This does not go into this movie. Knox somehow gets Kersey's phone number and texts him, come meet me or I'll tell the cops what you've been doing at night. And we're going to meet at this public place in the bathroom, which, you know, anytime a guy texts me, come meet me in this bathroom, <laughs> you know, I'm there. So <laughs> Bruce Willis goes and it's, of course, a trap. He thinks he's going to kill Knox. He gets shot in the arm. It's a big shootout. Police are running everywhere. I guess this is the turning moment where Paul realizes he's gone too far. I, again, if the daughter didn't magically pop out of the coma, they would have to explain what's driving his killings. But because his daughter magically pops out of the coma, and this is the last guy connected with the killing itself, and he's going to be at the same hospital she is because it's only one hospital in <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> Again, they save themselves with contrivance after contrivance so that we never have to think about larger implications for what's going on here. And Frank's big moment here is where he tells Paul, be a father. Stop doing this. Because Frank has figured it out. The cops are coming after Frank. Frank goes over to Paul's house, finds he's been living in the basement in this armory that alcohol and bullets. That would be nice. It's a man cave, right? That's, <laughs> that's what we call it nowadays. So that's why Paul decides he's going to go home. But I like the scene with Knox in the elevator. I It's full of suspense. I think Knox is going to do something right then. And does Willis know who Knox is? He suspects, I think. He knows. Yeah, he saw him at the club. Okay. And so then he goes to Bethany and buys a gun. And I'm like, I see what's going on here. He needs some furniture. Yeah, he's recreating the moment his family was attacked, using his daughter as bait, in fact. is okay with the idea that she is going to be in the house, but the point is, this time, I can protect them because I will be home, and I have all of the guns. Here's my one criticism, if this is going to be like a pro-gun, save your family, you could get some real cheap Wi-Fi webcams these days <laughs> to monitor your house. I'm shocked a doctor didn't have that in the first place. Have a safe room installed. If it's about safety and security, invest in some locks as well as some bullets. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I've actually taught a course in home security, Jacob, and I can tell you for a fact cameras are the least effective method of home security safety because that only works if somebody knows who robbed you. So if Stuart decided to come rob me of my Marvel statues... Well, I'm saying you could get ones with motion detect that send your phone an alert. There's all kinds of technology these days. Yeah, that's good. And you know what happens when you do that? You're able to call the cops who get there after the criminals have left with your stuff. Well, then you run into your safe room, which has, again, there's lots of safety measures you could take. Guns is part of that dialogue. Correct. But he doesn't have time for the safe room, and he doesn't want a safe room. He no. wants a gun. Yeah, yeah. The point is, I want to be the one that's there when Knox comes in. I know he's coming. I'm going to send Uncle Frank off. Like, here's some deep dish. Get out of here. <laughs> Daughter, you're going to stay here as bait, but I'm going to put you under the stairs, and I will do what I should have done all along, and that will redeem me. Did that room under the stairs exist earlier, or did Paul make a safe room in this plan? I wish we'd seen him go A-team and start cutting holes under the stairs. That's all, yeah, that's all I'm saying. But yeah, it does look like he's using his daughter as bait, which seems very irresponsible. But I feel like I'm back into an Eli Roth movie when these kills start happening, which I'm glad for that, even though the movie's about over at this point. 
Yeah, at this point, I'd err on the side of tasteless. I like just be gross and be like where I'll be politically offended, but at least I'll be rattled. You'll get to me. I mean, it will feel like an intense grindhouse experience. This, again, it's too little too late. The only thing that's intense is the way that that guy falls off the banister. Yes. And that grimace that he has when he lands. Yeah. It's like, ooh, that one's nasty. And the head turns 90 degrees and you hear the neck crack. That's fun stuff. Yeah, that is where this movie should live. It should live in that kind of uncomfortable, queasy, gory place. And it's, I'm telling you, it's like some total, maybe 20 seconds of this movie. This, all of these moments. Oh, yeah. No, it's not a whole lot. It's very quick. Yeah, I've been saying all of these moments. The splat of the jack falling in the car. Yeah. And this guy landing and breaking his neck. Just so little of it is in this film. I don't even know if you get a full minute of great exploitative violence like that in this film. That's what's so shocking to me. Yeah. This should have felt like a bloodbath. It should have felt like this guy has gone postal. You can make that however you want it to look. It could be heroic. It could be disgusting. It could be somewhere in between. But do it. And this movie is doing it in a scenario that no one would judge him for. And indeed, the cops are going to come and their guy who's been trying to eat healthy food is going to grab a slice of the deep dish and say, yeah, it's fine. He probably deserved it and walk out. It actually, I was so disappointed. He grabs a slice of like Pizza Hut. It is not deep dish at the end. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even deep dish. He got a New York slice. They were in Quebec. <laughs> And the daughter's going to be fine. She's going to continue her dream of going to New York. And so we can get the inverse of the ending of the original Death Wish, which, as you recall, he went to Chicago. Now the Chicagoan is going to go to New York. And you see how clean and polished Greenwich Village is, except, oh, oh, there's an Asian and he's stealing their stuff. And we get the finger gun scene, which was in the trailer. I mean, that's a very iconic scene with Charles Bronson. So... To have it here, is he giving up his vigilante ways or is he going to move to New York to clean up crime there and protect his daughter? I don't know. I think he said a line about he'd be down the street. I think the idea is he did leave Chicago. I don't know if he's going into private practice in New York or whatever, but I think if this movie were to be successful, and it will not be, (laughs) they would have a sequel where, yes, he is killing people in New York City. He said he's three stops away. I didn't know if that meant like three train stops, like you're going to be at Philly, and then you're going to be in Columbus, and then you're going to be in Chicago, or exactly what three stops away meant. I'll never think of Chicago as three stops away from New York, but like so much about this movie, completely vague and open to whatever interpretation makes you comfortable. Well, let's see what interpretation we all have of the film. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the 2018 remake of Death Wish? Jacob. I know a film's not working when I start noticing little details, like when Paul's daughter is in a coma, and what is he reading to her? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm like, ah, that's like fifth grade level. She's going to a New York university. I tried to figure out if that was symbolism. That's where I went first, and my wife and I, because we're just whispering back and forth, because there's only like five people in the theater. We're throwing out all (laughs) etiquette here. Someone want to use their cell phone? Go ahead. I don't care during this film. Stuart, you want to fart? Let it rip. (laughs) Oh, I did. What are you eating? So, um, yeah, we're like, just like, okay, so what what does that have to do? Okay, what happened? We're, we're sitting there trying to figure out what C.S. Lewis has to do with Eli Roth. Nothing, which is like most of this film. It's such a bland film, and I don't want bland, especially when it's Eli Roth, and especially when it's Bruce Willis, and we're shooting people up. 
say something or at least make it exciting to watch. The movie finished and my wife turned to me and said, now I know why you said that that Grindhouse trailer makes this film look good. You didn't expect it to be good, did you? I'm like, no, I went in with low expectations and you know what? It actually got underneath those. It's a boring, toothless film. Not recommend. Stewart. I think we saw the same film. It is not what I was prepared to see. And these politically sensitive times, something brazen and un-PC that's going to storm out and scream something that is going to offend, not this film. This movie takes the radical stance that if somebody comes and puts your daughter in a coma and kills your wife, you can kill those people and nobody else, and it's all fine. And that is pretty boring. That is avoiding the edge that the movie from 1974 clearly wanted to celebrate. And so why remake it if you're not even going to be as edgy as a movie that is now 40 years old? I don't get it. Eli Roth would have made that movie. I think the real, the, the problem is twofold. They didn't let Roth be Roth and Willis couldn't be old Willis. And so you're left with not a total flat line, but a surprisingly chaste and boring film. And no one would have predicted that. It's kind of a mild not recommend, but if you wanted some kick-ass un-PC 80s action, it's a strong not recommend. And for me, I'm kind of coming in the opposite. To me, this movie is the definition of not bad. Bruce Willis, he's not bad. Is he good? No, but he's not bad. Is the action good? It's not bad. You know, that's where I'm sitting on this. I sat there for the 90 minutes and you know what? I was entertained. I knew the paces this movie was going to take because I'd seen it twice before in Death Sentence and Death Wish. I wish the cops were more fleshed out. I wish we either spent less time with them or they had more to do than spit out gluten-free fruit bars. I wish there was both sides of the story and a little bit more of what we saw in that original. But I liked the cast, even though they were completely underused. Elizabeth Shue, you know, it made me think of if you've seen the remake of Left Behind with Nicolas Cage, how yes. Leah Thompson is his wife for like 15 <laughs> minutes in that film and then she's dead too. It's kind of like, this is what's happening to all the women I crushed on in the 80s. She is saved, Arnie. She does not die. She is saved in the rapture. Yeah. <laughs> but she's still only there for one scene before she, she repented for that uh, fucking the duck. so to me this movie is just the mildest of recommends in that 80s throwback i smiled when eli roth brought his effects to it which was there were i needed more i really wish there was more of that i wish the ice cream man had stumbled around holding his intestines for a little while you know something really hostile and cabin feverish but this movie's not bad I'll give it just a faint green arrow. I don't have strong feelings either way. Much like this film. Yeah, I think we all saw the same film. I agree. You come to it and you'll walk away with it with with whatever you wanted to bring. I mean, it doesn't offer it anything much. It just doesn't do anything. And so it is non-offensive, which is the last thing I thought a Death Wish movie would be in 2018. And I just think I went in with such low expectations, because when I think of the Bruce Willis movies I have seen recently, including Vice and A Good Day to Die Hard and The Cold Light of Day and Cop Out and all this shit I've seen him do. Not to mention his Broadway debut. Oh, I did see him in Misery. Yes, I saw him live. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. He was not good in that either. <laughs> But he got to sit in the bed and be sick. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't horrible, but... That's more miscast than James Caan. Laurie Metcalf stole that show. 
Oh, is she Annie? Yeah, she was Annie. Given all this Bruce Willis stuff I've seen, this is like the best he's done in a while. So I'm going to just say fine. And I might be giving it a pass because I do have nostalgia. You know what? I'm getting old. Play Black and Black and give me Bruce Willis and I'm back in 1988 myself. Maybe it hits some nostalgia vibes. It's still a weak recommend. If I'm ranking these films, I think Death Sentence is the best Death Wish remake. I think that's the best Death Wish film is Kevin Bacon's telling. Followed by Bronson's, followed by part three, which is just glorious, followed by this remake, and then two, four, and fuck five. Yeah, I like home invasion movies, and honestly, this whole franchise is maybe a not recommend in comparison <laughs> to the really good ones. This one, it's just not a great series. But I do think that you can stop with the first one. Death Wish 1974, for me, is clearly the one that had the most weight. It was the first it made the point and was a big hit for it. And culturally, it just was a moment. And nothing after that really recaptured that. I guess you could make the argument that Death Wish 3 and 4 are B-movie sleazy fun. And then I guess I'd go with Death Sentence, which just felt kind of pointless. But it did try to be a real movie. Then this one and Death Wish 2 is just awful. Yeah, I'd say that definitely the first one you should watch. Three, yeah, you should probably watch that one too, because it's so crazy. It is not a great film, but it is so crazy. I can't help but place that as number two. Then the crackdown. And then we get to the tough ones, man. What, Five Face of Death? Is, is that the one that had the fashion dude? Oh, I forgot that one. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even rank that one. That was <laughs> real, wasn't it? He went to the fashion world. Yes. <laughs> I didn't dream that. That happened. Yeah, I'll throw that one in after this one. I'll put that one as the second worst. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'd go there just because I did like those villains. And the death sentence, which I didn't super like. And then I'll place this one. And then two, because two, I mean, when you got the crew walking off because you're making that rape too pornographic, that one's just a gross feeling. But yeah, this one, second worst death wish because it's so bland. The crackdown. <laughs> it's got more of a viewpoint than this film. Yeah, I couldn't do that. I'd rather just have a throwback. You could watch the 80s film that they're throwing back to with the crackdown. <laughs> I just not a huge fan of the Expendables, but... I thought this did an okay job of giving Bruce Willis a modern action film. I don't think this is going to help his case any. I mean, as I mentioned, I think we're going to next see him in an M. Night Shyamalan film, and they keep talking about that diehard prequel sequel that's going to be part Bruce Willis in the present and part young Bruce Willis in the past. Oh, wow. It's real Godfather 2. Mm-hmm. I think they just want to recast Bruce Willis is what <laughs> it comes down to and have a polite handing of the torch instead of uh, Jack Ryan. Not to mention they have the digital technology to help with any aging issues he might have. If they only had the digital technology to make him emote. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They just don't want to spend the money on it. And why would you? I don't think we're in danger of ever seeing Death Willis 2. I don't think they'll be doing any more of this. Would they reboot it? Would it ever look like a movie that matters? My guess is if it comes up again, it's because some filmmaker has something he wants to say and wants to use this framework to say it. My guess is it would be a passion project for someone who really wants it made against the current of the times. But commercially, I see no prospect of reviving this ever again. Yeah, I don't see the point of it. The reason I rank Death Sentence so high is James Wan had something he wanted to do. He came to that movie with a point 
and he cast it appropriately. And I really think that you'd watch, if you want a Death Wish remake in modern day, you watch that one before you watch Willis. But yeah, I don't think this is going to do well enough to create anything other than I think we may have peaked Netflix's ears and we're pretty mm. soon going to be seeing <laughs> Death Wish the series. Well, they do have a Punisher series, which is pretty much the same thing. But what are we going to do next here at Now Play? Back to video games. Yes, back to Tomb Raider. We're going to the Cradle of Life with Lara Croft. And then that's leading up to another theatrical release. We're going through the theaters a lot this month. We got the new Tomb Raider. Then we got a Pacific Rim update. And then we got Ready Player One. We said it last year, and I think we said it the year before that, we probably sound like broken records saying we're going to the theaters a lot this year. But this year's a lot. (laughs) Every year, we're doing more theatrical releases than we've ever done before. We just keep leaping upon them more and more. And yeah, we already did Insidious this year and Black Panther. Yeah, yeah, we revisited a lot of franchises. But really, what we have is a lot of video game stuff. And a lot of theater stuff. If you're looking at your what's coming out in movie theaters calendar, in March, we're reviewing Tomb Raider and Pacific Rim Uprising. Jerry coming back to join us for some kaiju versus mechs. In April, we've got Ready Player One and Rampage. And it's coming out in April now. Our review will be out a week earlier than we had planned. Avengers Infinity War. Kicking off a summer full of sequels and reboots and things we're covering. Sure. Deadpool, Star Wars, Oceans. I wasn't expecting to go back to that franchise, but things we thought were dead, they're coming back. Jurassic World and more. So just keep an eye on our schedule at nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you like a little bit more home invasion horror, coming out next week for our patrons, we're reviewing a French home invasion film, High Tension. High Tension. Yeah, say it right, Arnie. It's French. <laughs> it's very visual. Don't worry. If you don't speak a word of the Moon Man language, you're still going to get it. And it's uh, been heavily requested. It was actually a requested choice by one of our patrons. Yep. And so if you're one of our patrons, you'll get to hear that show. It's got a big twist ending that I know you'll want to hear discussed. So you can find all the details about that at nowplayingpodcast.com. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time... Your death wish has been granted. Oh, I'll be back soon. It's not necessary. It is for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If they hadn't have broken us up, I would have killed you. Next time, you won't even see me coming. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Are you getting the most out of life? Are you satisfied, fulfilled, happy? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. <laughs> oh, what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Hope you guys have a good time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, huh? You know where to come back to if you want some more. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts 
through our Podbean page. I ain't known for my community spirit. Show me some money. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Give me the money, homeboy. <laughs> Give me the money now. It's collection time, Charlie. <laughs> collection time. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going to beg you, son of a bitch. Please. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. Stick them in concentration camps, that's what I say. We want to especially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, Anders Marath, and David Billington. Well, that makes you a preferred customer. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're a writer. Write about it. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests where you can win movies and soundtracks. Can we just all please... Be civilized for once before I kill somebody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm so glad you wanted to come along. The more people that understand our work, the better. Now Playing's Death Wish series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're tough. Yeah, you really are. Just a matter of keeping busy, Sam. Now Playing's Death Wish series is edited by Heath and Arnie. The guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Now Playing's Death Wish series credits announced by Brock. I underestimated O'Shea. It's not gonna happen again. The Death Wish films, all audio clips and music used are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Death Wish films or novels. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or book series. You're not thinking of going back to your old ways, are you? Is that such a bad idea? Let the cops take these guys down. You know, sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Some people would say that was an extreme position. I don't care. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. 
and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Whatever you little fucks think is important, ain't important. So stop! Stop it right now! Goodbye. Well, Stuart, be careful. Just agree with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm already weary because this man's got plague. <laughs> He's coughing every five seconds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd rather have a bullet. But did you enjoy the movie? Arnie, give him the plot. We can find out if our wishes have been granted. I've been holding that in. And it's coming right at me. Yeah. Get, get that bulletproof uh, yeah. Yeah, blanket up. I am no longer contagious. Okay. I've had this for two weeks. Imagine recording with me when we were planning on it. Yeah. Uh. Ultimately, this is neither fish nor fowl. Flesh. Okay, you're you're right. (laughs) Don't correct me. I came on the Terrence Trent Army. (laughs) It was caramel. It wasn't just water. She was making tres leches. Yeah. (laughs) Which is hard to do. Just side note, that shit will burn and turn into carbon. I can't tell you how many caramel cakes tasted like charcoal. You're all invited next time I make it. It's delicious. I just want to know where Knox got some pomade to do his hair up after being in the hospital. Like, you usually don't have all your beauty products there. <laughs> He's cock-locked and ready to rock, Jacob. He's got what he needs there. 